Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. And welcome to the Thinking Practitioner, where Books of Discovery has been a part of the massage therapy and bodywork world for over 25 years. Nearly 3,000 schools around the globe teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. Books of Discovery likes to say, learning adventures start here, and they find that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and they are proud to support our work knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork communities thought-provoking and enlivening content that advances our profession. And here's an interesting thing that I just learned. Instructors of manual therapy education programs can request complimentary copies of Books of Discovery's textbooks for review and use in your programs. Please reach out to booksofdiscovery.com and thinking practitioner listeners can explore their collection of learning resources for anatomy, physiology, uh, pathology, ethics, and business mastery at booksofdiscovery.com also, where you can save 15% by entering thinking at checkout. And this episode is also sponsored by us at the Academy of Clinical Massage, where we welcome you to the next step in your path to clinical success. Our orthopedic and clinical massage programs are fully online and are designed to elevate your skills in treating pain and injury conditions. You can learn at your own pace from anywhere, and as your instructor, I'll be with you every step of the way, offering personalized guidance and support. Plus, our new payment plan makes this unique educational opportunity even more affordable than ever. So join us and become part of a community dedicated to excellence in healing. Let's enhance your practice together at academyofclinicalmassage.com. That's that's great, Whitney. You really are the instructor. You're like speaking in the first person there, and that really is you. That is really me. Yep. That's, <laughs> that's really so cool. <laughs> and I know you've been working hard on uh, polishing and putting a sparkle on what you're doing now. So I, I think this is going to be great for people to go check that out. Yeah. See what you're up to. All right. Well, we're just How passing here in the United States the Thanksgiving holiday period right. here. So um, we're... Um, We've all been kind of like off for a little bit here, and uh, but great to be back on on the air with you again, sir. Some of us are off uh, all the time. Mm-hmm. I've been a little off here yeah. and there, but uh, I just live there. I live in this kind of off state, and it works out all right. I think I've been, so. I've yeah. been more or less okay, considering. Yeah. How about yourself? And you, actually, you just got back from Puerto Rico, right? Yeah, yeah. So, was and fun. you were uh, doing a training program down there. Is that correct? We, yep, we did an extended format training in the neck John head, and that was so nice to have the time to really go deep. We yeah, a bunch of people that had taken the training before join us, and a bunch of new people. Pretty, pretty big group, and it was great to go through the material step by step and have a bunch of time to do that. Nice. Yeah. What's the sort of manual therapy community like in Puerto Rico? Is it uh, is the training programs similar or training levels similar to here? You are pretty active. I would say I don't have a you know a representative sample, but I know just from the people that come to our trainings, it's a pretty high level of education and sophistication mm-hmm. to what they're doing. In fact, the, the assistants that came from the mainland were remarking on that too, how much uh, experience and skill the practitioners there had. Nice. Yeah. 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 Really enjoyed it. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm sure it's a great fortunate opportunity for them to get a chance to work with you as well. And I think it's it's wonderful that you're reaching out and, and touching all those different points of the world uh, nowadays too, because you're doing a lot of a lot of international stuff. 
kind of you to say. Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. You named a topic that caught my ears. What are, you, what are we talking about today? Yeah, well, I thought since this was the, the season of holidays and baking, then it would be appropriate for us to talk about baking today. But since I'm not really that good at baking, I thought maybe <laughs> bakers would get us there. So we're going to talk about baker's cysts today. Baker's cysts. All yeah. right. This, and this has to do with the knee. Baker's cysts has to do with the knee. We need to think of a title for this episode that makes that clear so we don't yeah. have people complaining about the lack of muffin recipes or something like That's that. Right. Yeah. A half-baked approach to therapy on the knee or something like that. All right. There we yeah. go. Okay. Yeah. So it's that's interesting. Baker cysts are I've seen. I was trying to remember. You know, it's probably half a dozen or fewer. I don't think they're that rare, but I think just in my personal experience, it's not that extensive. I have a couple of anecdotes, but I'm I'm really looking forward to learning from you and hearing what you have to say about them because I'm wanting to fill out my own baker cyst knowledge. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's well, dive is, in because well, I did. Let's dive in. Yeah. You want to start with like what it is? What is a Baker's cyst? Yeah. So um, Baker's cyst is an interesting, um, it's a cyst, as you would imagine, which is a fluid-filled um, sort of uh, sac, well, you can call it, that appears on the backside of the knee. It's, it gets its name from, again, it's usually named after some you know, older physician person. Uh, I can't remember his first name, Mr. Baker, back in the 1870s, I think was when he first um, named this. But it, there's an interesting yeah. anatomical feature on the backside of the knee that leads to the development of a Baker's cyst. So essentially you have a, a bursa that is sitting between the medial head of the gastrocnemius and the semimembranosus muscle. So this is again on the backside of the knee toward the medial side. And there's a, a, a bursa that's back there. But this is not uh, always like a lot of other bursa. It has some unique uh, anatomical features to it. In particular, there's a, a communication between this bursa and the joint ah, capsule of the knee yeah, on the posterior uh -huh. side. Yeah, this is important. Yeah. So, um, and this uh, this communication is not present in everybody, but it is a pretty frequent anatomical variation where there's sort of an opening in the bursa that opens into the joint capsule. And so, what happens is uh, inside the knee, from various different reasons, there may be uh, swelling or effusion develop inside the knee. And then that moves into this uh, fluid-filled sac. And there's sort of like, just because of the way it's structured, um, it turns into kind of like a one-way valve that will let fluid go into it, but it won't let the fluid come back out. So it tends to accumulate in there, and that's what creates the cyst or the sort of bulbous fluid uh, conglomeration on the back of the knee. Okay, I'm getting the picture, and I think you've just named some important concepts here. One is the continuity between the bursa, the fluid-filled sac between these different muscles, and the synovial capsule, the fluid-filled capsule around the joint. So this, they're both about uh, providing lubrication between moving structures. And so maybe it's good that they're connected, but you're saying in some cases, especially when there's something that causes some effusion or swelling or maybe fluid production within the joint capsule, that gets pushed out into this bursa. Through yeah. this one-way valve and causes this uh, lump, you said? Yeah, sort of like a, a cyst feels like a lump of, a soft lump in in the tissue, just like a, a cyst would feel on the back of your wrist with a ganglion cyst that you you know often may get that develops around tendon sheaths or something like that. So it's it feels nodular, but kind of 
larger and lumpy, you know, about golf ball or ping pong ball size in many instances. Okay. Is it important at this point for our audience to think about how they're diagnosed? Are there differential considerations there? Yeah, there are some important considerations about that. And a couple other things too. I've seen this in a, in a few papers um, that we're talking about, well, why does this happen? Why does this occur? There seems to be, there may be some relationship between um, management of intrafluid pressure inside the knee joint and this sort of sac and bursa can act like a um, sort of a, a valve to get some of that pressure outside of the knee joint. And that might be, that's been one theory uh, in terms of yeah. why that fluid accumulation uh, is in there. A but, little pressure yeah. chamber to relieve that pressure somehow. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah. Uh, one of the reasons we wanted to, to talk about this is, you know, for manual therapists is that you might find this on somebody and not know what it is and be well, really concerned. And that kind of gets back to your question of how do you recognize this? Frequently, they are evaluated simply by physical examination first, because that's where it might be most evident a person comes in and says like, there's something behind my knee. I feel it back there and I can put my fingers on it. And also, you know, I feel it when I bend or, or straighten out my knee. So those are uh, things that will be identified with, with palpation. But then it, for definitive um, identification, they'll oftentimes nowadays use ultrasound to see if we can get um, distinctions between fluid-filled masses and others that might be more solid um, that could be, you know, a much more concerning a tumor or growth in that area. Um, and then, of course, an MRI is, is kind of like the gold standard of being able to get the most information about what's, what's really happening back there. All right. And is pain a consideration in terms of deciding what it is? Pain can absolutely be a consideration because there can oftentimes be pain associated with particular movements. And this is one that's a little odd about the Baker's cyst, which is you would kind of think, at least I would think this way, that you know, if you got a big glob of something behind your knee, it's going to yeah. hurt most when you flex your knee and squeeze that glob of stuff that's behind the yeah. knee. So that certainly can happen. So during motion, you might feel pain during knee flexion. But actually with the, a Baker cyst, it's a little boom. more consistently painful in knee extension as boom, opposed boom. to knee flexion. And this boom, has boom. to do with the way in which the semimembranosus and the gastrocnemius medial uh, head sort of pull that bursa taut and squeeze it against the deep fascia underneath and cause it to be a bit more painful in, in the extension. So it's a, a little unusual finding, but that would help identify this as a likely cause there. When I glanced just at the uh, what is Baker's cyst uh, Google search real quick before our call, so I didn't come mm -hmm. in totally blind, it did say pain upon flexion or extension. Yeah. So it sounds like it's both ways. I think the people that I'm thinking of, it was more painful like you described in extension. Yeah. And so yeah. that that's one of the methods that's that's used to identify. And people might talk about this being more painful. And again, there are some things that might be uh, sometimes potentially confused with this because of that, um, the, the pain sensations ah. during the extension. Um, there was a number of uh, places in different um, uh, papers about Baker's cyst that I was looking at recently saying that frequently this is misdiagnosed and, and um, assumed to be a deep vein thrombosis. Uh, yeah. Especially if the Baker cyst ruptures and you have, um, a, you know, in a, that uh, conglomeration of fluid that maybe is outside the cyst, but it's in around the knee area there, and it can have a lot of symptoms very similar to to DVT, to a deep vein thrombosis, which is yeah. a consideration for us as many things. Absolutely, yeah, because there's they're both things that I think we can sort of assume from common sense. You don't want to push on them further when they're already 
an inappropriate fluid accumulation in this area in the posterior knee. And a lot of people are, I don't know about you, but when I was in massage school training, there was a few places that they, you know, warned us about as in potential yeah. endangerment sites. And one of them was the backside of the knee. But the way that was yes. often done is they're saying like, don't touch anything on the back don't of the touch it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yes. So like you do a nice long gliding stroke up the calf and then you just lift up or go over the knee and then put totally your back tour around the back of the knee. Yeah, yeah. In our knee class, that's often one of the taboos people are up against. It's like, wait a minute, we're not supposed to touch back there. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're articulating some of the rationales perhaps for that oversimplification or that caution thing. There's some delicate structures there and it could be a DVT story or it could be something that could be flared up or inflamed with yeah. deeper work like a baker cyst. Right. Well, are there particular risk factors or populations that this will be more likely to appear in? Yeah, absolutely. And this this is kind of interesting too. There there seems to be um, a fair number of baker cysts that occur in young people um, for no apparent reason. That they they seem to just occur, um, you know, idio idiosyncratically. Just um, no no particular reason why they occur. But in older populations, they're almost always associated with some type of knee pathology. Um, oftentimes, it's an internal knee joint injury where there's some other thing that might be causing excess inflammation, like meniscal tears, ligament damage, or something like that, where there's increasing degrees of inflammation within the joint capsule that will tend to lead to those happening. So um, the meniscal tears, especially with the medial meniscus, tended to be a statistically the most common uh, rationale of a sort of a, a comorbid thing that's going along with them and leading to the development of, of those um, uh, Baker cysts. Okay, so they seem to be correlated pretty strongly with those medial meniscus tears or others <laughs> damage, you said, or pathology of the knee joint. Yeah, and osteoarthritis is another one. Again, when you have inflammation, mm -hmm. um, you know, especially of the um, wearing way of the the protective articular cartilage on the ends of those bones, and you do have an inflammatory reaction in there. You're going to have excess tissue fluid inside the capsule, and that's when that's likely to to be squeezed out. Um, and you know, interestingly, when we were talking about that um, assessment characteristic a few minutes ago about flexion and extension mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> in the assessment process, this is something too called. Uh, and again, I'm assuming this guy's name is French. It's F O U C H E R. So it's probably Fouché. I'm going to guess how it's pronounced. Fouché's yeah. sign. There's a, you know, a, if you're palpating that area behind the knee, it will tend to get softer as a person flexes their knee and it will get firmer and more rigid as they extend the knee, which is the same correlation with that why it's more painful oftentimes in knee extension because that, that cyst is being pulled taut against uh, r related structures in there. So. Um, this is one of the other things that you can, you know, be looking for when when you're, you know, finding something that looks like it might be symptomatic. There, that is helpful and indicative of being a Baker cyst as opposed to some other type of um, mass that might not change. Um, that might be more, you know, a more concerning type of of growth in that area. So, did you get to cover the precautions? Did you say what you wanted to around that? Yeah, let me. I knew there was something else I wanted to go back to. So, yeah, precautions around this, especially for us as manual therapists. You know, yeah. we do want to be careful about doing anything that's putting increased pressure on those areas because that can possibly, um, you know, further aggravate the the cyst back in that area. One of the things that I was curious about because I had heard this question posed um, some time years ago is like, would something like manual lymphatic drainage maybe be helpful in that? And 
initially when we think of anything where there's excess inflammation, that does seem like a, a potential strategy that could be beneficial in addressing it. But in this instance, that fluid is all encapsulated within the cyst. So it's pretty difficult for any of those particular techniques to be um, very helpful in, in doing anything with it. So we do want to use caution, significant caution about any kind of pressure levels that are put on the backside of the knee if something like that does appear to be in there. Oh, okay. So we're back to don't touch the back of the knee. Carefully, yeah. Kidding. How about like <laughs> pressure being the superficial yeah. dermoneuromodulation type of techniques, myofascial okay. things or whatever. So yeah. All right. Yeah. Right. And, and the 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 uh, watershed sign there being is it painful? Is there a swollen mass? And especially is there flare-ups or heat or other signs that might be associated with thing? Yeah. And from the, you know, the history-taking yeah. perspective, people often tend to complain more when they're standing or doing something where that knee is extended as opposed to it being flexed, which is you know back to the same rationale that we had before. When yeah. the bursa is doing its work, when the, yeah. the structures around it are pulled taut and is trying to lubricate or cushion the relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, effective techniques or should be avoided with Baker's cyst? Yeah, so, you know, from a manual therapy perspective, this is another one of those things that um, I haven't really found anything that I think is particularly helpful in, yeah. you know, really, let's say, you know, I'm using air quotes here, treating this from a manual therapy perspective. I mean, yes, we, w we do want to try to encourage that fluid movement in there, but the very fact of the movement seems to be something that causes more fluid accumulation in some, in some cases. So... Um, and it doesn't seem like any kind of uh, manual therapy interventions are particularly helpful in reducing the amount of fluid in there. So uh, often that might be treated in, in traditional medical practices with um, aspiration or you know attempts to draw fluid out of there with a needle. Picking um, a needle in there and sucking out the fluid, yeah. Yeah, um, although I would say also <laughs> that I had come upon one paper that was saying needle aspiration had limited effectiveness because the fluid... Uh, that accumulated in a Baker cyst was a lot thicker than it is in some other types of fluid masses, and it was hard to pull it back through the needle. Um, hard to aspirate. So, yeah. So um, some cases it seems like it might work well, and in others not so well. And, and if something is going on for a long period without significant help, then they may go in and try to actually just you know cut it open, and excise it, and and get right. the fluid out that way. Yeah, and that's I want some I want some information about that too. But I'm thinking this takes us into the area of symptoms that are bothersome to people. People come to us seeking help for, but we it's hard for us to say that what we does has a direct benefit on the mechanism of that symptom. This is yeah. in that class. And let's say on the uh, negative side of that, hmm, maybe we shouldn't expect much. Maybe there's not much we can do to help. Let's say on the possibility side of that question, maybe there's a lot we can do, even if it isn't uh, making the bump go away or even draining it or sometimes even changing the pain level. Sometimes there's all quite a bit of uh, support we can provide, reframing. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and this, yeah, this gets back to a, a really important thing that, you know, I, I've had people say things to me over the years in terms of like, well, you know, a lot of these, let's say, you know, more serious kinds of orthopedic problems, there's not something that massage can really do for that. So what's, right, you know, right. what's really the point of kind of delving into these things? But the point is, as manual therapy practitioners, we often spend more time with our clients than anybody else in the healthcare system. And a lot uh -huh. of times, 
some of these kinds of conditions are missed because people don't take the time to do a thorough and comprehensive evaluation. And so your role um, in the clinic and treatment room might end up being one of like, hey, I found this and nobody else did because they weren't really looking carefully and thoroughly enough for this area. This is something you need to go have checked out with somebody. And that's also awesome. really valuable treatment. That's uh, that's a really awesome. valuable input from the things you're doing. Well, this is a little nuanced, but there's also the, the this is some of the ones I've worked with more recently, the client who comes in having been told they have a baker cyst, having worked with their baker cyst and orthopedic work and physical therapy, it still bothers them. They're just seeking new options, trying to mm -hmm. see what I can do for it. Yeah. Uh, there, my goal, and I, maybe I can think of two recent cases, and one I could say was clearly a success, the other I'm not so sure. My goal in that case is let's define, or let's change the definition of, of what helps or what help mm -hmm. means. Because it's usually from the client's perspective and from mine too, when I hurt, let's make it stop hurting. Yeah. Let's make that bump go away, or at least let's make it stop hurting. Sometimes we can't do that. Sometimes we can't do that. And so a lot of times we can, we don't have to deal with this problem, but the problem of not being able to make the pain go away, there's a lot of creative ways to still be helpful even in that circumstance. Yeah, I, and, I would certainly agree. And I think too, a lot of these are, are you know, indicators that there's also an underlying problem that needs to be addressed. If you have the basic okay. system, it might be, not be like, well, maybe yeah. I don't know that I've got meniscal damage or maybe I don't know that I've got cartilage degeneration in there. Yeah, absolutely. This is back to the, you know, we're some of the often the first people that can identify these things and maybe in our screening function help them get a clearer diagnosis. But back to my client who's done all that and yes, does have a history of meniscal damage, lots of arthritis. He's looking for help from his painful baker's cyst. What helped was somehow, I can't even, I'm not even sure I can explain it. I think of it as, again, refining proprioception and de-threatening the experience. Maybe this is back to the D&M uh, idea that you have. Like, let's, let's get the nervous system less alarmed about the fact that there's some sensation there. Yeah. So there's a lot I, I was able to do with him to make it feel a lot better. Mm -hmm. Now, did that make it go away for good? No. But part of my conversation with him was, uh, this is not our goal. This is not an appropriate yeah. uh, thing for us to be trying to do, is to erase mm -hmm. the cyst and erase the pain from your knee that would yeah. be nice but let's look for let's do some experiments let's see how it feels let's see if that's valuable to you and beneficial and in his case it, it was he decided it was even though yeah i could it would feel really good for a day or two and we both felt a reduction in the size and firmness of the cyst not from me getting in there and mashing on it yeah. but from gentler work with movement and uh, fluid, you know, thinking about feeling for fluid, synovial fluid movement through there. I was just playing with these ideas. I don't know if I'm actually doing it or not, but we both felt a palpable change mm -hmm. in the, the mass itself. And this is an N of one. This is one client. Of course. And, yeah. it, you know, it filled, it filled back up later. But part yeah. of the benefit, I think he would say, was, again, just the greater understanding he had for it. And so at least he was less freaked out about it. You think, oh yeah, there's that fluid sac filling up again, rather than oh yeah, there's my messed up meniscus again. Yeah, and that, I think yeah, what you're saying here too is so crucial because that very fact of the reassurance of of knowing a little bit more about what this might be. I mean, anytime somebody feels a mass somewhere, you know, immediately becomes the freak out, right. like oh my gosh, what is this? Right. You know, like is this serious cancer? Am I going to be 
you know, am I in really big trouble here? And, you know, understanding more about what's actually happening there, I think alleviates a lot of that anxiety and that can play a big role in the the pain reduction and the, the improved function, like you said. And of course, our response is, well, if you're concerned, please have that checked out. Not like, you're probably okay. Because yeah. there's, there's real reasons to have these things checked out if someone has. In this case, he had quite a bit. So we were able to help him refine his both sensation and his narrative about what was happening. Yeah. Uh, that's that's the best I got for like, you know, anything that we can't directly press on and make better. Yeah. I'll and turn. so <clears throat> again, I just I wanna just call everybody's attention to how valuable the combination of education and manual therapy are together when you're able to do that give somebody reassurance about things, let them understand a little bit more about what might be potentially going on there, and then give comforting, caring touch in that region to what you're doing. That's powerful work. It's powerful work. Nice. And then part of their overall self-care uh, strategy or mm-hmm. team or whatever, just to help them attend help them attend to something that's bothersome can be yeah. really valuable too. And, yeah. I, and then there we got to watch the tendency to think, oh, yeah, I can really help uh, all the way. I can do it myself because there's a lot of other things that someone like him could do and did do that helped him quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. What's should we, should we go back to the like impact? Is that something that we covered adequately? We talk about what happens to people when they're dealing with this? Yeah, I'm not sure that we did uh, go over that much. So, yeah, we could, we could touch base on that. Let's do yeah. So what's hmm. what's the typical impact of someone dealing with a Baker's system like this? Well, I think a lot of it is going to be, it's kind of what we were just talking about too, though, you know, apprehension, concern, fear about what's going on in there, what really is happening there. And of course, the, you know, the natural one is, is pain that people feel from various types of activities can certainly limit their capability for doing a lot of those activities significantly because of it. So, And that's huge. I mean, as someone who dealt with a knee injury earlier this year, it, the effect on my uh, mood and the effect on my daily yeah. rhythm and the effect on my aspirations for my even my to-do list, everything mm-hmm. was affected by the fact that I couldn't move very easily. Yeah. And extension, anything that limits or makes extension painful is has a big impact, yeah. more arguably than flexion. Mm-hmm. Because the, we extend on every step, we like, yeah. you know extend all the time. So if it's painful to do that, you just don't want to take as many steps. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you know you've got all kinds of other complications that are then potentially happening from the immobility, um, yep. and like you said, just the sort of psychoemotional capability of like I can't move like I want to move, like I know I need to move, um, and because it hurts when I do these kinds of things, that that has some some serious limitations as well. You mentioned, I think you mentioned conventional treatments, aspiration, surgery. Yeah. So sometimes, if if the, if the Baker cyst does not respond to other types of conservative treatment, you know, sometimes corticosteroid injections are used huh. uh, as an anti-inflammatory strategy. Um, and if those are unsuccessful, you know, all those other methods are unsuccessful, they will oftentimes go to uh, an excision or basically going in and cutting. Um, open the cyst to be able to try and attempt to drain it and suture the the, the bursa back up. Um, but again, if you don't deal with the underlying pathologies that are leading to the fluid development, which is oftentimes something like you know meniscal damage or arthritis or something like that, this may be a recurring problem. And there's a lot of reports of, of treatments that were 
short-term successful, but then the the uh, fluid accumulation returned uh, again because oh. the underlying problem hadn't really been dealt with. Or inflammatory load and all kinds of yeah. things that just could just keep that coming back. Yeah, yeah I'm curious to hear uh, your perspective on this from you know your specialized study and work with inflammation a lot. Inflammation. Like, do you think is that or yeah. is there maybe a and I don't know statistically if this is true, maybe yeah. a greater percentage or preponderance of people having something like this when there is systemic inflammation as opposed to just localized oh, knee joint I know I know no statistics but I'm absolutely sure that's the case yeah because when thing inflammatory I mean inflammation is at the root of 99% of everything we deal with mm -hmm. say musculoskeletally and when it's local it's influenced by what's going on in our whole body so if there are difficulties that my immune system is facing uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, it'll show up in local ways constantly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's not as simple as like, let's just take some turmeric and turn down inflammation and we're good. It's a it's a complex uh, interlocking multi-causal system that involves both your attitude and behavior and rest and certainly things like diet, but a lot of it is, comes down to the, the things we know activity levels, rest, sugar, yeah. consumption. You know, those are the, the big three, three right. four. Yeah. So yeah, I'm sure that if if someone really if I would let's just put it back to me. If I was really dealing with a baker cyst that was persistently painful and flaring up again, I would be looking at my overall inflammatory profile mm -hmm. and not just that spot in my body. A lot of times when the body can cope and resolve inflammation easier, not just turn it off, but actually resolve it, which means rest and exercise, basically, uh, then all these local things get a lot better. Yeah. And I think that points to the, the crucial value of taking a comprehensive and thorough history when you're talking to people, because if you don't ask about some of those kinds of things, you might not see the connection or they may not see the connection at all between the fact that I had this other you know, yeah. bowel or, you know, um, you know, inflammatory problem and something else that's going on here in my knee or, or, or yeah, somewhere else right. in the body as well. And there's, I mean, a lot of this goes beyond our most immediate scope for sure, but it's it's just useful for us to keep in mind that it's not always just the knee. Yeah. If someone is um, dealing with serious medical issues or smoking two packs of cigarettes a day or something like that, then there's going to be body symptoms related to that. Yeah. For sure. Yes, um, I think you were getting ready to ask me something. I interrupted you a moment ago, so I don't know. If that derailed <laughs> I don't your remember what it was. I don't yeah, remember yeah. what it was, but we've got. I got a lot of questions here still. Uh, what What should a session be modified for someone? How How should a session be modified? How would I change my session if I suspect someone has a Baker cyst, or I know they do? Have we covered that? Is it just like don't use the pressure on the knee, or is there more yeah, truth in that? You know, we we talked about that a little bit, and I think that's that's just the the kind of the big precaution is is don't do something that is going to further yeah. aggravate this. Now, if this is the first time you see it with right. somebody, then that's going to be different because we're going to probably suggest that they go have this evaluated by somebody who's got the capability to look into detail to find out what's really going on in there. Uh, and but I'm probably not going to say, thing, yeah, I'm, I'm probably not going to say that could be a blood clot or a tumor. I'm yeah. probably not going to say that, right? Let's but I am going to, yeah, I'm going to encourage them to have it checked out. So this is something you probably want to yeah. have checked out, and yeah, yeah. Now if more. it's that person that is 
a recurring person like you were talking about too, working with them more yeah. frequently, then I think you've got mm -hmm. a little bit more leeway. The things that you're doing, as long as you're exercising caution, but you can look at some more significant strategies about, you know, what can we do with, with processes of increasing awareness in this area of or, or yes. decreasing pain sensations or through super more superficial types of applications. All those can be valuable and beneficial, even if they're not specifically draining the cyst. Like right. you mentioned, I think there's still yeah. a great deal of benefit there. I know what I was going to mention. Compression is something that I've heard people use and some of my clients have used with for relief. Just applying a compression brace or fitting while they're doing activity to keep this, the swelling from happening to try to prevent it, head it off. Yeah. That's, is that have they found that successful? Um, do you know? Yeah. Yeah, to some extent, I think. I think mm -hmm. that's one of the tools. We want all the tools we can get. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If, well, we've covered a lot. What else do you think people would need to know about this? Well, you know, one of the things that is a question that comes up for me around this is like, if you've got this pathoanatomical structure uh -huh. process where you have a yeah. one-way valve that yeah. lets fluid go into this bursa sac essentially and then accumulate in there, um, I mean, I don't know the answer to this. It's just something I'll ponder. It seems like uh -huh. if that keeps happening, how does it ever get out of there naturally anyway? Um, does it just gradually get reabsorbed? I don't know the answer to these questions, but it seems like you might develop a situation where this just continues to try to push more in there. And then there's a certain point at which you can't get more fluid in that sac unless some of it goes out of there. So um, that's an interesting idea to ponder maybe just enough That's, of it doesn't accumulate fast enough and there is some degree of resorption or something i'm guessing based on just my thinking and my biases but also from again this very limited population of people that i've worked with on a more ongoing basis uh that it comes down to frequency of uh irritating activities mm -hmm. that there is some return this valve is not like a hydraulic valve it's a it's made out of connected tissue and things like that. And that's, that's as such, it probably leaks some. So over yeah. time, things do drain or maybe perfuse to some extent. Yeah. So then, then it becomes like, how frequently can I do my hike up the mountain that makes my baker's cyst flare up? And mm -hmm. again, from my, this was one client again, thank you for this one client. It was pretty clearly activity related. If he did something too strenuous, he would be really swollen and sore the next day. Yeah. And so then for him, it was like, how much can I do and how frequently can I do it? Let my body essentially recovers from that. Yeah. You said something here that just caught my attention for a moment. This might be worthy of a study uh, uh -huh. to look into this, which is that it's probably not a perfect valve, like you said, uh, anatomically. Right. And there's probably a little bit of leakage, in which yeah. case, if you've got like a you know a balloon and you're trying to get all the water out of it, and there's just a little bit of leakage at the, the opening of that balloon, uh -huh. you know, what if you squeezed it more within certain parameters. Like what if we just Could did be. a lot of knee extension yeah. movements that pulled that, you know, taut and sort of squeezed it. Might that actually be therapeutic um, somewhere it, down the road there? Yeah. It's that Goldilocks thing between not wanting to flare it up, but yeah. wanting to massage it in quotes enough mm -hmm. to encourage perfusion. Yeah. So it's finding finding the dosing, frequency, pacing, all the kind of thing. Yeah. Because that's it does. You can definitely flare those things up by just getting in there and trying to, you know, erase them. Like I said, yeah. that's not what to do. Right. So but that would be an interesting study for somebody who's looking for an uh, interesting research project to engage in there. Yeah. So. Or an experiment to try with your 
a good rapport client who's been screened medically, like I happen to have had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good experiments there. Yeah. Well, this is this is great. This is uh, anything else you want to say as we wrap yeah, it up? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's not again. First of all, I just want to comment. This is not a terribly common thing, so it, it's not something you're going to see probably really frequently. But it's not terribly uncommon as well. No, they, no. Uh, occur in, in a moderate number of people. So uh, these are just some things that I think are really helpful for us to be aware of as manual therapy practitioners to watch for. And also, like we said, a lot of times what we're doing is helping to educate our clients to be more attuned and aware about some of these kinds of things. So um, our goal here is to really just, you know, touch base on these things. Like, here's here's something else to think about that you might not have heard much about or might not be aware of, but sure. don't need to freak out about it necessarily, but just know there's some things that will be really helpful if you've got a good understanding of what this might be, and and therefore you know you can relay some of that onto your clients as well. There you go. And there, yeah. so I just googled prevalence of Baker's cyst. Nineteen uh, percent of asymptomatic adults in one study. And wow, more that's, prevalent. I mean, that's yeah. pretty high. Yeah. Well, that means that just goes to the thing like they're they're normal part of anatomy too. Yeah. So that's the asymptomatic ones. It's yeah. only some of them that become symptomatic mm-hmm. and more prevalent. Two age peaks, four to seven years. You mentioned the young youngsters that sometimes have them, yeah. and thirty-five to seventy years old. Those populations with Baker's cyst. Yeah, and this is you know maybe it's uh, super common. Maybe them getting flared up isn't so common, but it brings to the fore these important questions about how does our work support our clients' symptoms, especially when they come to us wanting us to be the mercenary to get rid of their symptom. Right, and yeah. it may not be you know maybe not be a obvious or clear mechanism for us to do that, we can still be helpful in so many ways. Yeah. This is yeah. a great uh, poster child for that concept as well. So and I think kind of like thank this you is for the hearkening back to our, um, I'd have to look up the number of the episode that we did. I believe it was with Mark Bishop. We were talking about client expectations. Yes. Um, right. How valuable and important it is in making significant headway therapeutically with people by the confidence that they build in you and your knowledge. So again, this is why I think it's it's so helpful to know about a lot of these types of things and be able to talk intelligently with our clients about some of the possibilities of things to think about because that enhances their confidence in you as a practitioner and that has positive therapeutic outcomes. So well thanks for helping fill in yeah. some gaps in my knowledge base. All right. Well thank you too for uh, yeah, it was a great uh, client stories too that you were illustrating that with, um, and gets give us another perspective about ways to address this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks to our sponsors, we are supported also by ABMP Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership gives professional practitioners like you a package including individual liability insurance, free continuing education, and quick reference apps, online scheduling, and payments with Pocket Suite, and much more. And do remember, ABMPC courses, podcasts, and Massage and Bodywork magazine always feature expert voices and new perspectives in the profession, including from you, Till, and from myself. Thinking practitioner listeners can save on joining ABMP at abmp.com forward slash thinking. Thanks again, ABMP. And thanks to all of our listeners and to our sponsors, as we said, too. You can stop by our sites for Show notes, video, uh, transcripts, and any extras, you can find that over on my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, where can I find that with you? Advanced-trainings.com. 
Great. And if you have comments, questions, or things you'd like to hear us talk about, just record a short voice memo on your phone and email it to us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com. You can also write there if you're a person who likes to type. We'll take all those messages in. And uh, you can look for us on social media. Um, I'm there, of course, under my name, Whitney Lowe. And Till, where can people find you there on social? My name, yes, my name, Till Luca. Yeah, I want to hear some of your Baker Sis stories. I'd love to hear some more. Yeah, that'd be Hope curious. Get yeah. some of those, like your successes, your failures, your your quandaries, your whatever. Just send us some of those. If you could also rate us on Apple Podcasts, that would be very appreciated. It does help other people find the show. And you can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever else you listen. Please do share the word and tell a friend. Thanks for today, Whitney. Thank you, sir. It's great talking with you again. And we have got some uh, other interesting episodes. We're going to round out the end of this year with a couple of really exciting uh, interview episodes that we have on our plate coming up soon. And then looking forward to some more stuff coming in the new year as well. I can't wait. See you later. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good.